We started off this series of podcasts by discussing the similar trajectories that rock and roll and television have taken over the course of their young lives. How both television and rock and roll entered the American household in the 1950s, became the center of cultural life in the 60s, became even more central in the 70s, and continued their predominance into the 80s and even into the 90s. And we hypothesized that this was no mere coincidence, that what turned Elvis and the Beatles into the overnight sensations they were was their appearances on The Ed Sullivan Show Sunday night at 8 p.m. when the whole family was sitting down in front of the TV set. In other words, the rock star as we know him, or her, is a product of the age of television. In the 1980s, rock and roll would return to its television roots with the arrival of MTV. But in between, rock and roll took some serious left turns, breaking away from primetime TV and exploring just about every facet of science, philosophy, religion, and art that was available to the thinking man or woman at the time. The number you have dialed has been changed. The new number is... In the 60s, as the man in the gray flannel suit, or woman, was being replaced by the dude with the peace sign and sandals, rock and roll went along for the ride, in a big way. Rock music entered the realm of the cerebral. For whatever reason, the leading rock and roll figures embraced a certain kind of intellectualism, to the point where, in 1967, a highbrow magazine designed to sit on the shelves next to publications like The Atlantic and The New Yorker could be launched out of San Francisco, ground zero of the youth scene, writing exclusively about this new music-oriented counterculture. That magazine, in case you haven't guessed, was Rolling Stone. And it's no surprise that when it did come to naming this magazine, they would name it after a Dylan song. As far as this wild new culture and what started it all, it may or may not have had something to do with Owsley Stanley saturating the clubs with high-quality acid when it was still legal, and after it became illegal. But whatever the root causes were, for a while, rock and roll left the orbit of family television and explored all corners of the known universe. And people understood that that's what rock and roll was supposed to do to leave no stone unturned and no turn unstoned. People expected their rock stars to be not just countercultural, but poster children for the counterculture, literally, because you could buy posters of them at head shops. And it wasn't always like that. Elvis may have represented a kind of teenage rebelliousness in his day, but he never came out against the system. He joined the army. And in 1970, he went to the White House and got an ATF badge from Richard Nixon and denounced the Beatles for being un-American. For their part, except for that one comment that John Lennon made about being bigger than Jesus, the Beatles weren't even political until the counterculture became bigger than they were. Flashing forward another 10 years, Growing up in the 70s, you'd hear a lot of people disparaging television. 
calling it the boob tube, the idiot box, and quoting some apocalyptic statistic about the number of hours kids spend in front of the tube now, and how many murders they witness on the screen by age 10. Pretty much everything wrong with society could somehow be tied into television. We were getting fatter, lazier, we didn't go outside and experience nature. We couldn't do as many pull-ups or sit-ups as kids in the 50s. We were materialistic. We isolated ourselves and grew more paranoid. We were dull and listless. We didn't read enough anymore. Families were breaking apart because they ate dinner in front of the TV now. We heard it all. And as kids, we took it all to heart. We were made to understand that kids in the good old days went outside and chose life and did sit-ups and pull-ups. Whereas in our childhoods, every dysfunction, every feeling of alienation, boredom, and loneliness seemed to tie into the fact that kids watched X number of hours of television per day. And it wasn't necessarily our fault. There were reasons kids didn't go outside anymore. The fields and parks where kids used to play had been salted over and developed into housing tracts and landfill. The cities were unspeakably violent now. Vietnam seemed to bring back a whole Pandora's box of demons to America's streets, and Watergate put the match to the torch. But for an impressionable child trying to make sense of the world using the limited information at his, or her, disposal, and listening to the critical adult voices of the counterculture in the post-Woodstock era, Television was the bogeyman of the Nixonian silent majority America. That square box with the vertical hold knob and the antenna represented everything wrong with this square country. Nixon, Watergate, materialism, television, boob tube, idiot box. That's the message that trickled down when you were a kid. Music, by contrast, was where our better selves resided, where our freedoms lay. As a kid, you definitely understood that the good stuff about the world was gone now. It was in the past. The environment had been polluted, the countryside was ugly, the green spaces had been destroyed in the name of greed and progress, and the collective soul had been stabbed in the eye sometime between the Gulf of Tonkin and My Lai. And we were now living in the aftermath of it all. As a kid, you understood that life used to have more value in the old days. That the 70s in America were some sort of purgatory for all the bad stuff that we as a nation had done before. You instinctively knew that what was left of our better nature lived on mostly in the stack of records that the cool adults had on their bookshelves between two cinder blocks. And needless to say, television was the polar opposite of that. The really cool adults didn't even have televisions. Now that was making a strong statement. That was like announcing you were going to quit your job and go live in a cabin without electricity or running water. Which was another thing people were doing in the 70s to get away from it all. And that is a podcast for another time. Today, we're going to pick up from where we left off two episodes ago and go back and survey that period from 1965 to 67 that is sometimes referred to as the Summer of Love and that has come to be remembered as a kinder, gentler 60s counterculture before the other shoe dropped in 1968 in this episode of The TV Room. This is the Dumont Television Network. The 
question really is, which candidate and which party can meet the problems that the United States is going to face in the 60s? The warning that I've received that the brown asset is not specifically too good. Greetings to the people. This is Tanya. And I would never choose to live the rest of my life surrounded by pigs like the pigs. Hello, I'm James Garner. Please drive under 55. If we don't, there may not be enough gas for any of us. Oh, no, not you, kid. Look, I really can't talk to you, okay? This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? All righty, good people. You're all comfortably seated and ready to go. You ever been to San Francisco? Yes. Did you like it? Yeah. You know, that's the, the most unusual thing. I've never yet run into anybody who ever had anything... Uh, derogatory to say about the place. Everybody who goes there falls in love with it. But there's a whole new scene now in San Francisco. As they say, this is where it's at. That's where everything is happening. And we're going to talk to some people who are making it happen. As a matter of fact, they probably, as I mentioned before, are the most talked about group in the whole world at the moment. A little controversial. Very interesting sounds. Tremendous hit makers. This particular album from which this selection comes, I think, is, uh, if it's not the best-selling album of the day, it's awful close. It's certainly in the top two or three. It's uh, from the surreali Surrealistic Pillow, which is a mouthful to say the least. Ladies and gentlemen, with a thing called White Rabbit. Let's greet the Jefferson Airplane. Why did music such as you just performed happen in San Francisco? Because the, I think the part of it is the promoters gave us the freedom to uh, write our own material. Older people worry. They see the way you're dressed. They hear your music. They don't understand it. Do parents have anything to worry about? Uh, I think so. Their children are doing things that they didn't do and they don't understand. Yeah? All right. What's going to happen this summer in San Francisco? Uh, well, I couldn't even begin to tell you in about an hour or so, but there are going to be a lot of people there. And uh, How many would you guess are going to congregate? Uh, somebody said 100,000, but I don't know whether this is correct or not. Establishment's going to get a little stirred up over that. That was the Jefferson Airplane making their debut on American Bandstand on June 3, 1967. It's kind of astonishing to hear Dick Clark describing them as the coolest, hottest, most talked about musical group in the world at that moment. Dick Clark was America's oldest teenager, and he was using the kind of hyperbole usually reserved for the Beatles to describe the Jefferson Airplane. And that's a good indicator of just how far into the mainstream the counterculture had penetrated by 1967. We talked about how in 1966, the Beatles still had kind of short hair and still played concerts wearing their matching suits and ties and still put forth an outwardly clean image to the public. And we talked about how in the early months of 1967, the release of Strawberry Fields Forever as a single kind of flopped by Beatles standards, only reaching number eight on the charts instead of the usual number one with a bullet. It was as if the public was signaling that it wasn't quite ready for its rock gods to be this groovy and out of sight just yet. Remember in the film, Back to the Future, when Marty McFly plugs in an electric guitar at the 1950s high school dance and blows everybody away with his 80s power chords and his duck walk? 
The crowd, and even the backup band, goes nuts over what they're witnessing on stage. Do you remember that? And do you remember what happens next? Marty McFly decides to kick it up another notch. He goes down on his knees and starts shredding the guitar for a two-minute solo, making it feedback like Hendrix at Woodstock. But when he looks up and sees the crowd's reaction, instead of their minds being blown, they look at him like he's gone insane. And all Marty McFly can do is shrug and say, I guess you guys aren't ready for that yet. Well, that's how it was for the Beatles at the start of 67. The public just wasn't ready for it yet. John Lennon considered Strawberry Fields to be the best song he had ever written for the Beatles up until that time. And George Martin, the Beatles producer, oversaw some groundbreaking studio work to make the song possible. Strawberry Fields represented a new plateau for recorded music and a new plateau for the Beatles. But February 67 was just a little too soon for the public to fully embrace the Strawberry Fields level of psychedelicness from their rock idols. By June, however, the public was more than ready, as the Jefferson Airplane's appearance on American Bandstand and Dick Clark's generous praise showed. And for their part, the Jefferson Airplane was happy to play up the weirdness for the cameras, presenting a Unabomber look to the American Bandstand audience, wearing hoodies and dark shades and icing the camera with cold stares from behind their sunglasses like it was a Black Panther's press conference or something. They alternated between sauntering and standing eerily still on stage during their performance. Naturally, they were lip-syncing the whole thing, the guitars and the microphone weren't even plugged into anything. But that didn't matter. It was the picture they painted that mattered. The picture of this new scene that was taking off in San Francisco and that America's oldest teenager was helping to sell. Dick Clark was right. These ultimate outsiders had become the hot new faces for the summer of 67. They had a secret language that you could only understand if you drank the tea and bit the mushroom, if you bought the ticket and took the ride to San Francisco. As America's oldest teenager, Dick Clark understood that whatever Beatlemania meant to the teens of 1964, the Jefferson Airplane now meant to the teens of 1967. White Rabbit hit the airwaves as marching orders that the youth of America could hardly disobey. Even today, 50 years later, White Rabbit still casts something of a spell. Who in 1967 could resist the exotica of the song's opening eight bars, with the bolero marching beat wafting out of the AM radio grill like a tendril of smoke in a Bugs Bunny cartoon? meandering through the airspace to reach you, tapping you on the shoulder and beckoning you to come this way, this way. It was the entire 1950s establishment versus the opening eight bars of White Rabbit. There was no question who would win. This was a generational call to rise up and be counted. It was the 60s version of the Revolutionary War Fife and Drum Band, 
right down to the military-sounding snare drum. This was the second act of the rock and roll revival that was kicked off by Beatlemania in 1964. All that latent, rebellious, subversive teenage energy that had been planted by the British invasion finally got activated and reached critical mass in 67. The third act would be the punk rock renaissance of 10 years later, and the swan song would be the alternative grunge movement of the 90s that started off strong but seemed to fade into the wallpaper as the world got interested in other things. From where Dick Clark and those American bandstand teenagers sat back in 1967, those first-wave British invasion musicians of 1964 were starting to look less like rock and roll rebels and more like novelty boy toys. They were blokes from a quasi-mythical island with cute haircuts and charming accents. But the Jefferson Airplane were something much more complex and adult and serious. That front woman, for instance, Grace Slick. What kind of name was that? With her black hair and pale skin, her cool demeanor and mirthless vocals, she was inscrutable. Was she Tokyo Rose? Matahari? Morticia Adams? Natasha from Rocky and Bullwinkle? Was she a runway model? A traitor to her class? An urban gorilla? Bonnie and Clyde? Who was this femme fatale? And just what were her intentions with the sons and daughters of America? The airplane offered kids a new deal, a manifesto instead of beetle bangs and matching schoolboy outfits. They came from the People's Republic of San Francisco, not Penny Lane. And they didn't smile much or act obsequious on American Bandstand. You heard the tape. When Dick Clark asked airplane guitarist Paul Kantner if parents had anything to worry about from what the airplane represented, instead of saying, gosh, no, mister, we just like playing music and having a good time and stuff, Kantner said, yeah, I think they do have something to worry about. In other words, be afraid, Middle America. Be very afraid. The hitmakers of San Francisco were not like the hitmakers of the British invasion. And unlike jolly old England, San Francisco was somewhere you could hitchhike to this summer. In the last episode of The TV Room, we skipped ahead a year and talked about the chaos and bloodshed of 1968. And we left off at that seminal moment when the Beatles released Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and went from being adorable mop tops to full-fledged, acid-eating hippies. Well, Sgt. Pepper's was released on June 1st, 1967. And this Jefferson Airplane appearance on American Bandstand was on June 3rd just 48 hours later. Dick Clark was right. Change was happening everywhere and fast. Two weeks after the airplane appearance on Bandstand, from June 16th to 18th, the Monterey Pop Festival took place in an idyllic beach community 50 miles south of the San Francisco Bay. 
That was the event that introduced the world to Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, and Otis Redding, as well as Ravi Shankar, The Grateful Dead, Country Joe and the Fish, and The Who. What Monterey Pop also did was introduce the world to the concept of the music festival and the hippie way of life. The idea that you could spend three days and three nights camping out in a crowd of tens of thousands, having a good time, being bound together only by the music, the sense of community, and the recreational drugs, without a single arrest or acid casualty taking place. Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix became the new prom king and queen in the world of music after that. And the hippie ideal became even more romanticized. The July 7th edition of Time magazine featured a cover story entitled The Hippies, Philosophy of a Subculture, which quote-unquote explained the hippie culture to the straight adult world, because inquiring minds wanted to know. Hunter S. Thompson once said, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. I'm not sure if he was talking specifically about the Monterey Pop Festival when he said that, but he could easily have been. Among other things, Monterey Pop was a meeting of the minds. The long-awaited and long-feared get-together of San Francisco talent and L.A. marketing. The truth of the matter is, what was taking place at the Monterey Festival had already been going on in San Francisco since 1965 or 66. Same bands, same hippies, same acid. San Francisco was a scene made entirely by people outside the established music industry. L.A. was the established music industry, albeit with a raging hippie streak. Two of these enterprising L.A. hippies were Lou Adler and John Phillips of the Mamas and Papas. These are the two names that are usually given the credit for coming up with the idea of the Monterey Pop Festival. In Hunter S. Thompson's terms, San Francisco brought the weird and L.A. brought the pro. You got your chocolate in my peanut butter, L.A. No, San Francisco, you got your peanut butter in my chocolate, and I own the copyright. Peace and love. When you watch or listen to the Monterey Pop compilations, you'll notice that there aren't too many L.A. bands in the final mix. They were there all right, and they played, but they did not conquer. They were pretty underwhelming compared to the other acts on stage, and as a result, they were cut from the film and the soundtrack. The only L.A. band that made the film cut was the Mamas and Papas, and that was probably because John Phillips was the one who put on the show in the first place, and because his wife Michelle Phillips, also a member of the Mamas and Papas, was the best-looking woman, or man, at the festival. The rest of the bands in the film were all from San Francisco, or London, or India, or the American South. But the L.A. versus San Francisco aspect of the Monterey Festival is a subject for another time. One residual effect of this weird meets pro encounter was the San Francisco startup founded by Ralph Gleason and Jan Wenner. Gleason was an influential Bay Area music journalist who co-founded the Monterey Jazz Festival in 1958, an event held every year at the Monterey Fairgrounds, which was very popular. 
and helped bring jazz into the mainstream in the late 50s. So when Adler and Phillips started planning their pop rock festival, Gleason helped them arrange for it to happen at Monterey and helped rustle up some of the local talent to come out and play. Jan Wenner was a recent graduate of UC Berkeley and a reporter who Gleason mentored. According to Little Steven's Underground Garage radio show, Wenner, while reporting for a local paper from the festival, wrote, everything before Monterey led to it, everything after came from it. For Jan Wenner, it certainly worked out that way. After the festival, Wenner would borrow the seed money and with Ralph Gleason would start Rolling Stone magazine, where the weird really could go pro, where there would be a budget for people like Hunter S. Thompson and Lester Bangs and Cameron Crowe. determination of hippies to start a new society has made its mark upon San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury. Part of the neighborhood is occupied by ordinary people, bewildered by what's going on. Part of it is occupied by a growing population of hippies. The hippies are capable of extremely hard work, even though they tend to approach work as the rest of us do sport. Some of them are very successful. This is the house of a popular local band which plays hard rock music. They call themselves the Grateful Dead. America fell in love with the hippie in 1967, or at least with the idea of the hippie in the same way that America had fallen in love with the idea of the beatnik in 1959. Suddenly beatniks were showing up everywhere in popular culture that year. We saw the introduction of the TV character Maynard G. Krebs on The Many Loves of Dobie Gillis. We saw the debut of The Twilight Zone, as well as the success of Jack Kerouac's novel On the Road and the popularity of jazz albums like Miles Davis's Kind of Blue and the Dave Brubeck Quartet's Time Out. And most significantly of all, the 1959-60 season of Leave it to Beaver is when Eddie Haskell went from being an obsequious flatterer of Mr. and Mrs. Cleaver to the slick-talking hipster of Mayfield High that we all know and love. But we digress. 1967 was shaping up to blow 1959 out of the water in terms of a cultural shift. As Dick Clark and the Jefferson Airplane had discussed on American Bandstand, San Francisco was the place to be that summer. 100,000 kids were expected to flood the streets once school let out that month. But millions of mainstream Americans as well were getting hip to the hippie and to the accoutrements of the hippie lifestyle, which mainly boiled down to free love, pot and acid, and concept albums, also known as sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And we owe most of this mainstreaming of the hippie to good old Los Angeles marketing. Remember our friend John Phillips of the Mamas and Papas? Well, he didn't just help set up the Monterey Festival, he also wrote the theme song and gave it to his friend Scott McKenzie to sing. 
and he recruited a respected documentary filmmaker named D.A. Pennebaker to film the entire weekend and edit the footage down into a feature-length documentary. And that's why we have so much iconic footage of Hendrix, Big Brother and the Holding Company, and so on. But the best-liked and most memorable segment of that film might just be the opening clip, which is a montage of the beautiful people at the festival set to the theme song that Phillips wrote. That film clip serves as America's introduction to the hippie. San Francisco talent, L.A. marketing. It was a classic soft sell. Lots of candid shots of uninhibited waifs with inviting smiles, beckoning like mermaids. And they were accompanied by non-threatening young men whose hair may have been a little scragglier than the 64 Beatles, but who did nothing more aggressive than dance around like wood nymphs. And the drugs? Well, you had certainly been hearing all the horror stories. You saw the Blue Boy episode of Dragnet. Stand still. Reality, man, reality. I, I could see the center of the earth. Purple flame down there, the pilot light. All the way down, the pilot light of... He's clean, Joe. Creation, Except reality. Please. Reality. What's your name, son? You can see my name if you look hard enough. Come on now, what's your name? Don't you know my name? My name's Blue Boy. What do you think, Joe? Card wheels? Sugar cubes. I'll make you book. He's been dropping that acid we've been hearing about. All right, son. You're under arrest. But the footage that you saw from Monterey mostly showed that the drugs just made people smile a lot and dance like nymphs. Unless it was the music that did that. And the music? Well, you'd been hearing, if you're going to San Francisco, be sure to wear a flower in your hair for quite some time now on the radio along with other songs like that. And they kind of got stuck in your brain after a while. And you weren't alone either. You were starting to hear these kinds of songs in more and more places beyond the kids' radio stations. And the hippie was starting to turn up in other places as well. Why do you think you're the only witch who can dig the mortal sea? And Dora is playing duets on the sitar with Ravi. And she's practically taken over the guru. He refuses to meditate with anyone else. <laughs> Primetime sitcoms like I Dream of Jeannie and Bewitched devoted multiple episodes to hippies, with cast members dressing up in costume, getting into character, and seeming to have a lot of fun with it. Ippin, 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 you want to feel my embrace. Don't you ever wash your face. Ippin, you really care for me. Don't you comb your hair for me. Ippin, you want to leave me weak and weepy. You got to look wild and weird and creepy. Ippin, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And then there were the Smothers Brothers. We heard the Jefferson Airplane being interviewed by Dick Clark on American Bandstand. Well, the airplane made an appearance on the Smothers Brothers just a couple of weeks later. And the differences between the two experiences are very noticeable. For one thing, the American Bandstand appearance was in black and white, while the Smothers Brothers appearance was taped in raging technicolor and featured what were at the time cutting-edge video techniques to mimic the visual effects of a psychedelic light show. But the real difference between the two programs is in the attitude of the host. Dick Clark, America's oldest teenager, 
took in the Jefferson Airplane as an outsider would, kind of like Ed Sullivan or even Richard Nixon. In 1967, you were either with it or you weren't. You were either tuned in and turned on, or you were not. The Smothers Brothers were. Dick Clark was not. The easiest way to tell is by what each said when they introduced the Jefferson Airplane. First, Dick Clark. They probably, as I mentioned before, the most talked about group in the whole world at the moment. A little controversial, very interesting sounds, tremendous hit makers. This particular album from which this selection comes, I think, is, uh, if it's not the best-selling album of the day, it's awful close. It's certainly in the top two or three. It's uh, from the surreal Surrealistic Pillow, which is a mouthful to say the least, ladies and gentlemen, with a thing called White Rabbit. Let's greet the Jefferson Airplane. Now, the Smothers Brothers. If you want to experience it to the fullest, we suggest that you, I, I don't want to offend any of you, but we suggest that you eat a banana while you're watching. <laughs> or smoke a banana, as my brother said, but actually he's, he's pretty far out, even for me. Now here they are, Jefferson Airplane and their latest hit, White Rabbit. For as long as I can remember, I've always been aware of the Smothers Brothers even though I only became aware of television well after they were off the air. And I suspect that's true for a lot of people over 30. I've always known they had a TV show in the 60s and that it was a well-regarded show, even by the kind of people who generally deplore the state of television and aren't afraid to let you know about it. Same with Laugh-In. That's another show that was fondly remembered by the cultural elites and a show that still gets good press today five decades after it went off the air. When you look at the signature bits that represent these two shows, things like Sock It To Me on Laugh-In and Mom Always Liked You Best on The Smothers Brothers, it's hard to understand what exactly the countercultural appeal of these shows was. But in looking back and contrasting the two Jefferson Airplane appearances, I think I'm finally starting to get the idea. What the 60s were at the bottom of it all was a generational shift. The baby boomers were seizing the reins from the World War II generation. In 1967, it was the cultural reins. They would try to seize the political reins in 1968, but that wouldn't go as smoothly. The silent majority won that round, and Richard Nixon became the 37th president of the United States. But 67 was the year of the cultural shift and you were either with it or you weren't. The Smothers Brothers, with their banana peel reference, were with it. What being with it ostensibly meant at this early stage of the countercultural revolution was that you were hip to the existence of hallucinogenic drugs. We're talking about acid and pot here. That you had used these drugs yourself, or that you could at least fake it around people who had, without being uptight. The Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour had started off inauspiciously enough in February of 67. Tom and Dick Smothers were two clean-cut looking brothers with a comedic folk singing act. They were seen as pretty safe family entertainment, albeit with the ability to inject a slightly more youthful flavor into the long-standing network institution of the Variety Hour. Ideally, for the purposes of network ratings, they would be some sort of combination of Ed Sullivan and the Monkees. 
Probably the best source of information is a book by television critic David Biancooley called Dangerously Funny. And that's what we'll be using here to recount the Smothers Brothers' time on network television. The Smothers Brothers was a mid-season replacement for a program called The Gary Moore Show that had been canceled due to exceedingly low ratings. Gary Moore had hosted a successful daily, then weekly variety show on the CBS network from 1950 to 1964. And he ended the show at his own request because he wanted a break from television. Moore came back in 66 and was put up against Bonanza in the 9 p.m. Sunday time slot. But instead of his previous success, Moore finished dead last in the ratings. Going up against Bonanza, the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour wasn't expected to do well either. No one was. Bonanza was the number one rated Nielsen show for the last three seasons. CBS had previously thrown much-loved programs like The Twilight Zone and Perry Mason up against Bonanza, with the result of both shows being crushed by the Cartwright boys and canceled altogether, just like Gary Moore was. And now, CBS needed a replacement. Developing an hour-long drama took months, but CBS only had weeks. So they went with the variety show, which was much easier to throw together on short notice. The Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour turned out to be an instant hit. The initial success is usually chalked up to having an eclectic mix of acts for cross-generational appeal. In the era when nobody had more than one TV in the house, you could imagine the power struggles that would take place between parents and children over who controlled the TV set. In a movie about the 60s, Parents and children would be shown arguing about important things like Vietnam or the election of 1968. But in real terms, fights over what to watch on television were probably the single greatest source of intergenerational strife in the American nuclear family, with lots of people going to bed angry. Junior wanted to see the Jefferson Airplane, but Dad wanted to watch Bonanza. And since Dad paid the bills, you could imagine how that conversation usually went. But for some reason, the Smothers Brothers began to develop a loyal audience right from the start and would go on to displace perennially number one ranked Bonanza from the top slot. That initial success probably had something to do with the variety of guests on the show. The episode of February 16, 1967, for instance, featured Betty Davis, Bob Crane, and the Buffalo Springfield. The show of September 17, 1967, featured Betty Davis, Mickey Rooney, and The Who. Another show featured Eddie Albert, Moms Mabley, and The Birds. And a later show featured Ravi Shankar, Mel Torme, and Don Knotts. But the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour was remembered for its groundbreaking appeal to the younger generation, not for displacing Bonanza from the number one slot. We've been talking about how 1967 was a revolutionary year for pop music. And the Smothers Brothers, because they were new, because they were young, and because they were slightly off the network radar in that first abbreviated season of theirs, were able to bring in the happening acts of the time, like the Turtles, the Buffalo Springfield, the Blues Magoos, the Electric Prunes, Simon and Garfunkel, and the Jefferson Airplane. The airplane debuted on the Smothers Brothers in May, 
where they were billed third out of a total of four acts after Jonathan Winters and Nancy Wilson. When they appeared on the show a month later, just after Monterey Pop, they were the headliners. And that was the finale for season one of the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. Season two would run from September of 1967 to March of 68, and this is when the Smothers Brothers really came into their own as the benchmark of primetime counterculture. So much of what they did was groundbreaking at the time. They ran a sketch that called attention to the fact that you could show people being killed on television, but not making love. They took the unprecedented step of making fun of the sitting president, Lyndon Johnson, they ran satirical editorials at a time when TV networks were just beginning to run serious editorials. In the free-for-all election year that was 1968, they got a stand-up comedian named Pat Paulson to run for president, and they scripted his material to lampoon the real-life workings of that stranger-than-fiction campaign season. What the Smothers Brothers did in having Pat Paulson run for president and having clever comedy writers pen his material was not duplicated until the John Stewart and Stephen Colbert era of television. It was in their second and third season, which ended up being their last season, that the Smothers Brothers began their inevitable clash with the network powers that be. This is the time when the 60s were really at their most intense and turbulent. It's when the younger generation, the countercultural generation, began finding their voice and gaining a toehold in the mainstream. And the Smothers Brothers writers, who were of this generation, were much savvier than the hidebound network executives and censors were. Steve Martin started his career in Hollywood by writing for the show. Other names on the list included Rob Reiner, Don Novello, Lorenzo Music, and Bob Einstein better known as Meathead Stivic, Father Guido Sarducci, Carlton the Doorman, and Super Dave Osborne. Lorenzo Music was 30 when the show started. The rest of them were under 25, and Meathead was just 20. A couple of these writers were the offspring of Hollywood comedy legends themselves, and none of these writers seemed to have fear of challenging the system and turning TV's sacred cows into hamburger. The Smothers Brothers were generally able to work around the censors by using double entendres and winks and nods that the audience understood even if the censors didn't. A good example of this is a sketch called Share a Little Tea with Goldie, which featured a hippie stoner character named Goldie O'Keefe. The Smothers Brothers first tried to name her Alice D. Get it? But the network censors weren't fooled for one minute. They then tried naming her Mary Jane Roach, but again, the network balked. They then pitched the name of Goldie Keefe, Keefe, spelled K-I-E-F, being the Arabic term for marijuana resin, and Goldie being a reference to Acapulco Gold, a popular marijuana strain of the time. The network agreed this time, provided the name Keefe was changed to O'Keefe in its traditional spelling. Here's Goldie. I'd like to greet all you ladies, as I usually do. Hi. <laughs> as you remember the last time we got together, I told you we'd be talking about how to get rid of those unsightly, unwanted roaches in your home. But you ladies were really on top of it, and you figured it out for yourselves. <laughs> and I 
Meanwhile, in the world outside of the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. In an effort to counteract the exploding drug culture in 1967, network TV revived the old cop drama Dragnet, which offered several up-close and personal episodes about the dangers of drug use, with Blue Boy being the prime example. What do you think, Joe? Cardwheels? Or sugar cubes? I'll make you book. He's been dropping that acid we've been hearing about. All right, son. You're under arrest. Of course, officers Friday and Gannon were so hopelessly square, and the dragnet message was so hopelessly out of touch, that the only kids who had any interest in watching it were the ones who were already stoned and wanted something to laugh at. When Dragnet creator Jack Webb realized that officers Gannon and Friday were a little too out of touch for the kids to relate to, his answer was to create Adam-12 with officers Reed and Malloy, two young, hip cops that the kids could relate to. Yeah. No. As previously mentioned, the Smothers Brothers were a comedy act, a classic straight man, funny man team. Dick was the smart brother, and Tommy was the dumb one, whose plaintive cry of, Mom always liked you best, was the punchline of almost every routine. To our ears, this bit sounds anything but cutting-edge, topical, or controversial. But let's hear it in context. My old man's Negro. What do you think about that? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Hold on, hold on. I'm afraid you're incorrect. My old man's a Negro. He is not a Negro. You are a no fascist. No chance. I'm not a fascist. Then you know some people who are. I know you, and I know me, and I know you're my brother, so that makes it impossible, absolutely Im genetically impossible for your old man to be a Negro. You know why? Because my old man is not a Negro. No wonder Mom always liked you best. Kinda edgy, right? Dragnet and the other shows of the time tried to talk about the issues in their way, but the Smothers Brothers did it in their own special way. By the way, the Smothers Brothers might have been the most progressive show on television in 1968, but as you may have noticed, they're still using the term Negro which reminds us that 1968 unfolded in real time. In hindsight, the tectonic shift of the 60s looks like it happened in an instant, like an earthquake, or over the course of an acid trip. One day everything is clean cut and black and white, and the next day everything is rainbow colored and groovy. But the 60s wasn't handed to Moses in an acid tablet up on the mountaintop. It played out over the normal course of human events, carried out by mortals like us. So although Stokely Carmichael coined the phrase Black Power in 1966, and the Black Panthers were all over the news by 1968, in America, over two-thirds of black people still preferred the term Negro, according to a 1968 Newsweek poll. Let's hear some more Smothers Brothers. In line with our policy of taking a stand on the pressing issues of the day, we now present another in our continuing series of editorials. The subject, are our draft laws unfair? 
Here again speaking for our program is Mr. Patrick Paulson, Vice President. What are the arguments against the draft? We hear it is unfair, immoral, discourages young men from studying, ruins their careers and their lives. Picky, picky, picky. <laughs> now, we don't claim the draft is perfect, and we do have a constructive proposal for a workable alternative. We propose a draft lottery in which the names of all eligible males will be put into a hat and the men will be drafted according to their head sizes. <laughs> the tiny heads will go into the military service and the fat heads will go into government. Material-wise, that's pretty tame stuff compared to Married with Children or even a Simpsons episode. Two shows that aired Sunday night in primetime, just like the Smothers Brothers did. But could you imagine a 1950s show openly ridiculing the government's draft effort during the Korean War like that? These three skits we just heard, the Pat Paulson editorial, the Mild Man's Negro song, and Goldie O'Keefe, a.k.a. Mary Jane Roach, a.k.a. Alice D., give you an idea of just how far the Smothers Brothers were willing to go in order to push the limits of what the man in charge said was and wasn't acceptable on television, and to keep pushing. This cat-and-mouse dynamic with the network censors was pretty much how the Smothers Brothers' last two seasons played out, until CBS finally fired them. You can see that while the network could attempt to exert some level of control, in the long run, it was a losing battle. And that went for society as a whole. Trying to keep the lid on the counterculture was going to be a losing battle. Next time on The TV Room, we'll take a look back at the guest list of Tommy Smothers' favorite Smothers Brothers episode. And we'll finish up our look back into how the musical culture of 1967 transformed the face of television and cinema with a pop analysis of that game-changing film, The Graduate. Thanks for tuning in to The TV Room. The TV Room is a production of Sorif TV. Find us on the internet at sorif.tv. That's S as in Sergeant, O-R-E-F as in Friday. TV. All right, son, you're under arrest. See you next time. <laughs>